Good to see everyone today. Uh, my name is John. For those of you who I haven't had a chance to meet, I'm one of the pastors here at Access. Um, I'm just grateful that we're here together today to worship, to be a community, to connect with God. And so, um, yeah, I'm really excited about our, our current series. It's just a short um, series that we thought would be helpful to do as the new school year starts. Uh, leadership lessons. That's Leadership is something that um, I just personally really enjoy thinking about and, and reading. Um, I want to grow uh, in my leadership and as a leader. Um, but I also realize that um, there may be some of us here for whom, uh, you know, you may not necessarily share that same level of interest in leadership. And so you may be wondering, you know, does this stuff apply to me? And I want to say without a doubt, yes, it absolutely does. Um, you know, some of us, uh, some of you, you lead lots of people in an official capacity. Uh, others of us uh, may not. Uh, but when it comes down to it, all of us lead at least one person, ourselves. Right? There's no one else in charge of our lives but us. Um, and so I think the reality, though, is most of us have influence and bear influence on others as well. And so the things that we'll talk about today, I, I, I do think you'll find them to be relevant and applicable. So let's pray for our time together. Let's pray that God, God would, uh, would speak to us, that we would have ears to hear. Lord, thank you so much for our time this morning. Uh, thank you for... Uh, the worship songs that we sang that reminded us that you are Emmanuel, God with us, through the fire, through the storm, through every circumstance of life. Um, I pray if there are anyone here who just needs to hear that word of comfort, they would be able to receive that today. I pray that as we look at today's topic on leadership, uh, that, yeah, whether we lead lots of people in an official way, whether you know, we're a parent leading our kids. We're just trying to lead ourselves in a better way that you would teach us, O oh Lord, that you would speak to us. You would inspire us and encourage us uh, with your word, with your living words. Uh, yeah, thanks, God, for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you uh, attended one of our leadership gatherings in the past, um, I've actually shared some of this before. It's one of my favorite leadership sayings. And it comes from a guy named Richard Blackburn, who's the executive director of the Lombard Mennonite Peace Center. And the phrase that he kind of came up with that I think is so helpful is this. Start with conviction, stay calm, stay connected, and stay the course. Start with conviction, ask the question, what's the fire in my belly? You know, what... What keeps me up at night? Some people say the phrase, I couldn't care less to express apathy and indifference. This flips that on its head and says, I couldn't care more. What is that thing which I couldn't care more? I'm going to devote myself to it. Start with conviction. Leadership begins with a fire in one's belly. But then inevitably, as you pursue change and you pursue this vision that God has given to you, uh, hiccups, obstacles, challenges are inevitable. As leaders, you will be challenged, you'll be questioned, you will be critiqued. And in those moments, we have to stay calm. We have to stay rooted in who God has made us to be in, uh, and, and, and stay, stay, uh, yeah, stay true to our guiding principles. 
And then stay connected is all about the fact and reality that there are no lone rangers in leadership. That if you try to go at, go at it alone, you will fail. You will burn out. You need support. You need community. Uh, that is why one of the big reasons we do life groups as core teams is because, yeah, throughout the year, there will be times when you need to turn to your partner and be like, man, this is tough. And they'll be like, yeah, that's, this is tough. Let's stay at it. And just to have that sense of connection and community helps leadership survive. And then the last is stay the course because any change worth pursuing uh, takes time. And for every step forward, there's going to be two steps backwards. And so we, as leaders, have to stay the course. We have to show grit and perseverance. Uh, Today, I wish I could speak about all of these, and maybe one day I will. But for today, I I wanted to focus on that second one, stay calm. Uh, And I wanted to do so for two reasons. Uh, First, uh, you know, when I think about our particular cultural moment as a society and as, as people, as a church and as individuals, I feel like there is a lot of anxiety in our system. You think about uh, immigration crisis, LGBTQ questions, tariffs, uh, gun violence, the president, uh, all these different things. Like 24-7, I feel like I am surrounded by conversations and images and news headlines that feel really anxious. (laughs) They are not calming topics. Uh, in the newsletter this past week, I posed a question, hey, when's the last time you had a freak-out moment? And I would, I would kind of say as, an, as a nation, we're having a series of freak-out moments as we face various challenges. Uh, at a church level, uh, yeah, there are ways in which anxiety is also in our community, in our faith village. Um, There is uh, a really unique, the leadership we were talking about and noticing that right now we are on the, we are in this inflection point, the cusp of a massive uh, baby boom. Uh, Just everywhere you look, people are sprouting babies. You don't sprout babies, you have babies, right? And it's like, um, yeah, there's this excitement in the air, especially for first-time parents, but there's also a lot of nerves. There's also a lot of anxiety. Uh, For those who are on their second or third, it's like, I'm tired. I don't know. Like, we're going from, like, man-to-man to to zone defense, right? And there's there's just that perpetual, like, fatigue. And then there's the resultant strain on marriage, which affects just how you show up on Sunday. And then as a leadership, we're also noticing there are a lot of, uh, like, leadership vacancies and volunteer slots that we're trying to fill as people move and people uh, adjust to the various transitions of life and t- are taking needed breaks and rest. But all of that can contribute to a heightening sense of anxiety. And then at a personal level, man, uh, just like every other day, there's just something that like makes my blood pressure go out the roof. So the other day, on this past Friday, I took all four boys to the Galleria. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> but my twins, the youngest, they're three years old, they love escalators and alligators, which is the way they say elevators. And so I was like, where in Houston is there AC and escalators and elevators? And I was like, the Galleria. So we went there, and we were on, the, on our elevator ride, going to the 12th floor, and I turned around, and Lukey got off on the third floor, all right? So Grace and I were talking about 
There's some male privilege here because I could share this story and then people will probably laugh at the end of it. But if it was like a mom, you'd be like, shame on you, mom, for not taking care of your child. Anyways, so I had turned for a second to look out the window and look at some of the stores. And then when I turned around, Noah goes, where's Lukey? I was like, what do you mean, where's Lukey? Oh my gosh. And the door had shut and we started to go up. And I'm frantically looking for the arrow signs that point out, right, so I can open the door. That doesn't work because we're starting to move. I start pressing the, the, the panic alarm thing. So the elevator's going, and I'm just like, I'm saying all sorts of things in my head. I'm just like, oh my gosh, what do I do? We're going all the way to the 12th floor, right? We went to the highest level. And I'm like, I'm just, I'm having a panic attack at this point. But the one calming thing about this situation is I can hear Luke screaming his brains out. So it was like, I knew where he was. And he was standing, I could picture him, he was just standing right where the doors closed, right? And I was just like, please don't let the voice trail off, because that means someone took him or he ran away. But I just heard it stay put. So I'm like, just please, 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 I'm just... There's nothing you can do. You're just in an elevator, so you just have to wait. So we went to the 12th floor, ding, and I'm like, go, 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 third floor. And we went, you know, all the way down. And thankfully, he was standing right there, right? I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> thank, thank you, Lord, right? So panic attack, high anxiety, stuff like this happens all the time in our household. <laughs> so I was thinking about, man, in my life at least, or in the world around us, there is lots and lots of anxiety, And man, do we ever need to know how to stay calm. So that's the first reason, right? Just kind of the cultural moment. But the second reason is, as I was reflecting, uh, this series about is kind of just a casual series in in order to make space for us to share just what are some of the things that you've been learning about leadership. And over the last five years of my time here at Access, I would say that probably one of the primary lessons that God has been teaching me is around this. That God has been slowly helping me see how often, how quickly I tend to jump off the deep end and get caught up in people's reactivity and the anxiety of the moment when things get challenging. And God has been teaching me how to slow down a little bit, how to face some fires with greater calm. Uh, And I still have so much to learn, but man, I am starting to see that if as a leader I can stay calm when things are getting high stakes and stressed, it has a big impact on my kids, uh, my marriage, my family, uh, the, my, my church, the people I lead. And I see this in other people as well. So that's what we're going to look at today, what it looks like to stay calm. So this morning, we're going to learn some things from, uh, about staying calm from the queen of calm herself and a hero, whoa, all right, a hero of the Old Testament, Queen Esther. So the book of Esther has a unique place in the Old Testament. It's only one of two books where the word God is never explicitly mentioned. The other book is Song of Solomon, right? So there's only one of two books in the whole Old Testament, and that's kind of ironic, right? It's a book about God, a book where there's never once the explicit mention of God. And yet, as we'll see, Esther is this woman who knows her God, and she believes in her God, and she is devoted to her God, and that faith in God is at least one aspect which enables her to stay calm in the midst of some extraordinary circumstances and face them with poise and courage and to demonstrate incredible leadership. 
Esther's story, if you've never read it, is, it's full of drama. It's full of plot twists and ironies. Uh, there's a plan to enact genocide. Uh, there are interesting gender dynamics and racial dynamics. There are aspects of power and privilege at play. Uh, and in other words, there are a lot of triggers in this story. A lot of things that might make one not calm. So this story, the events in Esther, they take place in Persia around 500 BC. And the story opens with this vignette about Queen Vashti, who is married to the king, King Xerxes. And Queen Vashti actually defies one of the wishes of the king. And it sends him into a tailspin. The king, just furious that his wife, the queen, would defy one of his desires, actually uh, enacts this law that essentially banishes her from his presence forever. And so I was thinking about it. I was like, man, he he places a restraining order on her, okay? Uh, And it's just totally over the top. It's totally reactionary. It's totally ridiculous. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to make an example of the queen so as to maybe scare or prevent other women in the kingdom from doing the same with their husbands. And so maybe just think of the question, have you ever made a decision in a fit of rage that you later regretted? I have, right? Maybe you have too. But this is the world that Esther is born into, a world in which kings have the power and queens do not. A world in which men can literally snap their fingers and write laws demanding respect and deference from women. Esther is a woman. She is an orphan, powerless and defenseless, and she is a Jew, an exile, a refugee, a religious other. And so in sociological terms, she has three strikes against her, three damning, destiny-defining strikes. But all is not lost for Esther because she has a friend. She has a friend whom she is connected to. She has a friend that loves her and cares for her uh, in her state. And so her uncle Mordecai decides to take, adopt her as his own and cares for her. And he's a loving, caring uncle. And in this man's world, the king who had issued the restraining order against the queen and now doesn't have a queen has to has to fill this vacancy. So what does he do? He holds a beauty pageant, like pretty much literally. He gathers all the most beautiful women from the kingdom, has them parade in front of him, and he gets to choose who he, you know, who he fancies. And guess what? This little orphan girl, Esther, ends up being chosen. And so it's this crazy, like, rags-to-riches story. But that's not the climax of the plot. Because what ends up happening is that her uncle Mordecai Uh, ends up uh, offending this man named Haman. Haman is akin to, like, the king's chief of staff. And he is also an egomaniac. And so when Mordecai refuses to bow down uh, to Haman, Haman goes into a fit of rage as well. And this is what it says. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people 
the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. And so basically, Haman, because he feels dissed, decides to enact a plan of genocide against all of Mordecai's people. It makes you kind of think about what kind of hatred was already inside this man. But talk about being reactive. Talk about making a foolish decision because you couldn't stay calm. And with another snap of a finger, the king issues an edict calling for the annihilation of the Jewish people. So Mordecai learns of this plot, and he realizes he has only one hope, Esther. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. So then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to a tenor, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy, and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. So Mordecai realizes that the only way to put a stop to this planned annihilation is for Esther to go to the king and ask him to put a stop to this. The plan's pretty simple, right? I mean, she's the queen. She should she just ask her husband, and it's a done deal. But not so simple, right? Because as we remember from the first chapter, What happens when queens defy the orders of their kings? What happens when queens displease their kings? Like that, they're rid of. And not only that, there's a law specifically prohibiting this kind of action. And this is what Esther knows. And so look at her initial response. Then she instructed Hathak to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials... And the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So do you see the conundrum that Esther faces? It's been 30 days since I've even seen him. And if I just go in front of him, that's a death sentence, right? Unless he decides for whatever reason, unless he's in a good mood and extends his golden scepter to me. 
You see, Esther will rise. She will rise to become a courageous leadership example. But she is also human. And her first reaction is a human one. Her first feeling is fear. Oh my gosh, I may die. I can't do that. Her first thought is my hands are tied, right? I don't have an option here. Her first instinct is self-preservation. That is a human response. And all of us, all of us do that. But Mordecai persists. When Esther's words were reported back to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your family's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. So Mordecai knows that he has no other options. So he challenges her to do something. He says to her, think. Think about the situation. Think about what's at stake. I like how he doesn't shame her for feeling afraid. He's not like, how could you be so selfish? How could you be afraid? He implores her to think. Right? Move from your gut instinct, the, the, the initial reaction, and start to think about who you are and what you're about and what's at stake here. Think through the consequences. Yes, I know you're terrified, but you need to think, and Esther does. She considers the steep potential cost to herself, and she realizes what she must do. But notice, she doesn't just throw herself recklessly into action. and Like, all right, here I go. I'm going to go before the king. Boom, you know. She has this brilliant idea, a very strategic action that follows. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. I remember when I first read this story, I thought, oh, you know, she calls for this fast and prayer, and she's going to discern what to do. Like, she'll kind of decide at the end of it whether she's going to go see the king. But this makes it clear. She had already decided, what I I need to do is this. But I'm not going to go alone. I'm going to call my whole people together and we're going to pray the heck out of this situation. We're going to pray and we're going to fast and we're going to do this together. And if I perish, so be it. Man, she's the bomb, right? So she unites her people and those separated by all this distance, she calls them together in solidarity uh, through fasting and prayer. And for three days, they make this their focus. So the people... They pray, they come together, and this is what happens. So on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. 
So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. I'm trying to just think about what Esther must have been thinking and feeling when she put herself out there. Man, her heart must have been beating through her chest. She must have been so afraid, so many thoughts going through her mind. And yet, as calmly as she could, she approaches the king, not knowing what her fate would be. And because of her courage, because she stayed calm, she ends up saving the Jewish people. She reveals the plot. Haman ends up being executed. Her people are rescued. And Mordecai, her uncle, ends up being honored. Esther led in such a time as this. And she influenced a whole generation of Jewish people. Esther, the orphan turned queen, directly impacts the king's actions. And she was able to do this because she stayed calm. So what can we learn from Esther about staying calm? A few things, at least. One, I think that staying calm starts with knowing who we are and what we're about. I've found that in moments of crisis, it's really easy for me to lose my bearings, for my true self and what I want to be about, my values, to kind of go out the door and get swallowed up in the moment and the demands of the stress and anxiety that's, that's whatever's before me. And I think this is where Mordecai is most helpful for Esther. He reminds her, don't forget that you yourself are a Jew. Esther could have been swept up in, you know, all the glamour of her new life, all the clothes, all the royal trappings, and forgotten who she was underneath all that stuff. And so he helps her remember who she is. But then he challenges her to think about what she's about. His famous question, and who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this? is another way of asking Esther, Esther, what's your purpose? Like, what are you really about? What has God called you to, right, in this moment? Not what do you want to do, but what has God called you to? Maybe all of this, maybe your whole story is lined up for this. I think that's so critical because when we're stressed, when anxiety is high, when we face criticism, when people are not following our leadership, man, it can, the thing that will cause us to react the most and lose our sense of calm is when our sense of self feels threatened, right? When someone questions your competence and you equate your competence with your worth, oh man, you better watch out. Maybe you had a boss like that right, to offer any negative feedback just elicits a very strong reaction because it feels personal, right? Or if, uh, you know, we do something and people don't show up and we, we, we feel like we've let people down or we face disappointment or rejection, those things can feel very personal. And when it feels personal, that's when we're most susceptible to reactivity, to not being calm. And so we must start with knowing who am I? What's most true about who I am and what am I about? At a really practical level, one of the ways that I remind myself of this is, uh, you know, on my Evernote on my phone, uh, I have a, a, a document that contains a list 
of some of the principles and values that are most important to me. These took a long time to write. They weren't just like random principles I just, you know, found on the internet. These were things that as I faced different situations, I'm like, man, you know what? I want to be a person about that. That's really important to me. And so I've written them down. I have about a set of like eight or ten guiding principles. And I review them weekly, monthly or so. And the point of this is to internalize it so that when I do feel stressed, I have, a, I have something to fall back on. Because uh, like, in the moment, it's hard to kind of remember, what am I about? Like, how do I want to act in this situation? What do I want to do when someone's a, a jerk to me? Like, how do I want to respond to that, right? And so I have this set of guiding principles. I encourage us to maybe start that process if you don't have one already. What are the things that are most important to me, the way I want to live, the way I want to show up in life, and to jot those down? There's something powerful about writing it down and then start to review it regularly. A second thing that we learn from Esther is staying calm means moving from reactivity to response. Man, there is a lot of reactivity in this story. <laughs> it's interesting. It's ironic. A lot of the dudes are like very reactive in this situation. Well, actually, Mordecai is not reactive. And he, together with uh, Esther, kind of uh, respond to the situation. But man, a lot of the people in power, they are reactive. They, you diss me, man, I'm going to issue another law and just wipe you out. I'm going to shut you down, right? Um, and so uh, we see that in this story, reacting with an initial gut level, like emotion and instinct, that's totally natural. Esther's first res- response isn't, okay, I'll do it. Her first response is fear, right? Her response is, if I do that, I'm dead. But she takes a deep breath. Okay, like, what do I really want to do in this situation? Who am I and what am I really about? Um, I've noticed um, a lot of training around communication uh, in organizations or in high-stakes situations, if you've heard crucial conversations, or even a lot of marital therapy when couples are just not hearing each other. A lot of, one of the techniques, one of the things that is taught is try to get to the question of what do I really want in this situation? Like, what do I truly want out of what's happening here? You can't do that when you're at a level like level 10 going berserk, steam out of your ears. You can only do that when you've taken a little bit step back from the situation and said, hey, I, I just need to time out here. You go out and you try to f- take a couple of deep breaths and you figure out, what do I really want in this conversation, in this conflict? Because what I feel like I want right now is just to lash out at you, just to shut you down, just to make you be quiet, or just to run. That's what I want right now. But if I think a little bit deeper, if I start to think again, if I can calm down and take a step back and think about my values and think about this relationship and this organization, I realize that what I really want is our mutual flourishing. I want you to feel heard and for me to feel heard. I want us to understand how we've truly hurt each other. And so I realize that screaming at you is not going to get the job done. What I really realize is I want my people to be saved. Even if that means I have to sacrifice my own life, that's what I really want. And so staying calm moves us from this you know, reactivity to a thoughtful, faithful, God-inspired response. Um, I remember just as a small example of this, I was in a meeting with some volunteers. Uh, I was moderating the meeting, and the meeting started to get kind of intense. 
People were saying, I could tell people weren't really hearing each other, and things were starting to get personal, and the voices were rising. And as this happened, my, my first response to conflict, right, and negative emotion is, ooh, this is, <laughs> this is awkward. I don't like this. Let me just get out of the room. I wanted to do that. Or just be like, oh, hey, this meeting's kind of not, let's just end, let's close in prayer, okay? <laughs> That's what I wanted to do. And I felt myself shrinking. But then I kind of remembered, you know what? But what I really want is for this team to have trust with each other. I want this team to be able to work through their differences, respect each other, hear each other out. And so I took a deep breath and then another one. <laughs> and I was like, you know what, y'all? It kind of seems like emotions are trying to get high here. It seems like, you know, some of us are starting to feel offended by what's like, can we talk about it? Can we just have a learning conversation about our conversation? And just that act of acknowledging what was happening helped to bring down the anxiety. We were to take a little bit of time out and kind of talk through what was happening. And the team came out of that meeting intact, right? But it could have gone a very different direction. Right? So that's just one small example of how I've seen that at play. Maybe there are other examples that you can think of. Oh, yeah, I'll share another example from, from parenting. It's so funny, right? Uh, you know, uh, when my kids are annoying me, I want to yell at them. I just want to be like, you know, like, I just want to be like, stop crying. Like, what's wrong with you? Stop crying right now. And does that, is that effective? <laughs> never. Like, never ever effective. And I know this. I know this. And as I'm yelling, I'm like, this isn't going to work. But it just feels really good right now just to get it off my chest. But inevitably, what I have to do is I have to be like, okay, John, that's not the kind of parenting I want to be about. I want to get down at their level. I want to do some emotion coaching. So I have, to take a, I have to, like, take a step back, and then I get down on their level, and then I have to apologize for yelling, right? Like, sometimes I try to skip over the fact that I yelled and just be like, oh, yeah, it's okay, right? But <laughs> the twins won't let me have it. They, I have to apologize if they are going to move on from their hurt. So I have to swallow my pride. I have to apologize. I have to respond to them. And nine times out of ten when I do that, that works. It's, it's, it's incredible, right? It works. This stuff works. Third thing um, is that staying connected help us to stay, helps us to stay calm. Uh, it really is through her back and forth dialogue with Mordecai that I think Esther is able to re-engage her thoughts, her values. That sense of connection makes all the difference. And this isn't a knock on Esther. You know, I, I'm not sure if Esther would have gotten to the decision point that she, she ultimately made without the community that she had with Mordecai. And that doesn't diminish Esther's strength. What it does is it speaks to the importance of community. It speaks to the importance of having other people in our lives that when we're stressed, they are a safe presence that we can talk things over with, that they won't necessarily get caught up in our reactivity, but they can bear it, and when appropriate, they could tell you, hey, I'm with you, and speak the truth to you, right? We need people like that. Grace is like that with me. Sometimes when I feel really amped up, it just helps so much just to talk it out a little bit. As a staff team, we do this for one another uh, when we face situations. So staying connected helps us to stay calm. Staying calm isn't the same as inaction or silence. It's tempting to imagine staying calm as being stoic, unflappable, cool, immovable. You know, like the picture of Jesus snoring loudly when there's this giant storm happening. All right? 
That's not what I'm getting at here. Once Esther realizes what she wants to do, she gets to work. She mobilizes a prayer and fast movement. She doesn't just sit back eating a box of chocolates. Nor does it mean being silent. It is tempting to mistake quietness with being calm. But sometimes being calm means using your voice and taking decisive and bold action. The story of Esther captures the power of calm leadership in the face of great uncertainty. I really like how one writer puts this theme as uh, he captures what Esther is all about. Although he's writing about spiritual formation, I think it applies also to leadership. So read leadership here. Leadership is not about finding security behind an arsenal of answers. It is rather about embracing a world infused with mystery and ambiguity, a world in which living by faith is anything but safe and secure. This is what makes Esther's actions so remarkable. Her fate is uncertain. Her people's fate is uncertain. I think most of us would crumble under the weight of so much uncertainty. But Esther stays calm. She acts decisively despite the uncertainty. Even though God makes no promise that she will be safe, but she leaves her life in God's hands. Uh, yeah, and thank you, worship team. That second song and yeah, reminding us of the example of uh, Meshach, uh, Abednego, those guys. <laughs> you know, you know who I'm talking about, right? And how they stayed calm, and they didn't know they didn't know if they would be spared, but they trusted their lives with God's in God's hands. Um, as people who seek to lead in the way of Jesus. We are never given any guarantees that we'll be successful leaders, that our, you know, grandiose initiatives will succeed, that people will follow us or like us, that we will be shielded from criticism or even contempt, or that our journey won't be filled with a series of unending freak-out moments. But what God has given to us is the gift of Jesus. Jesus is our one guarantee that we have, And through his death and through his resurrection, Jesus has secured our future. He has secured our salvation. And he has said to us, who you are, who you truly are is my child. You are loved and nothing, nothing you do, nothing what people say about you can take that away, right? And so Jesus becomes the anchor for us in the seas of uncertainty and change as we lead. He is the reason that we can be anxious for nothing, as Paul says in Philippians 4. He is the reason that we can have our hearts and our minds guarded by the transcendent, the peace that transcends all understanding and circumstances. He is the reason we can have that, because he is Emmanuel, God, with us. And so with that in mind, I want to conclude with two charges to us, all right? The first charge is as you think about who you are and who you want to be, I want to encourage us as a people and as individuals to try to offer yourself as a non-anxious presence. Um, The great uh, writer, uh, leadership consultant, therapist, Edwin Friedman says that the most important attribute of leader is not knowledge or technique, but what the leader brings in his 
her presence. And the presence he, she needs is a non-anxious presence. This is one of the most impactful things that you and I can do as a leader. More than strategies, more than structures, more than new vision or initiatives. This applies whether you are a manager of multiple employees, a parent of screaming kids. Uh, This applies uh, whether you are the, the member of a residential association or PTO. The most important influence you can have is to be a non-anxious presence. Because when everyone else is reacting, when folks are flying off the rails and letting their anger dictate their actions or allowing fear to move them into paralysis or this kind of fuzzy or superficial consensus, when people are making poor decisions because anxiety is doing the thinking and not what is best for the organization or the family or for the group, not their principles or their values, a non-anxious presence can bring down the temperature, right? Can bring down the anxiety so that people can start engaging their values again, can start thinking through what are the principles that guide who we are about. So think about your life for a moment. Where are people in your life freaking out? And where can you bring the peace and love of Jesus by seeking to be a calm, non-anxious presence. Think about that for a second. And finally, to the church. Uh, Our calling as a church, our vocation, our mission, is collectively to be a non-anxious presence in a troubled world. I fear that often the church has done the opposite. Instead of being a calm, non-anxious presence, we've actually stoked fears, reacting to our sense of being more and more on the fringe or being pushed out of the spheres of power and influence, a fear of not having uh, the same political clout we once did. And as a result, rather than being a calm presence, pointing uh, unwaveringly to Christ, We have reacted, and we're just adding to the fervor and the stress of our nation and our world. What would it look like for us as a church collectively to know who we are, know whose we are, and what we're meant to be about, and to live into this calling to shine graciously, humbly, and winsomely as the light of Christ to God's kingdom, God's good kingdom, of righteousness, justice, and peace. Let's pray. Lord, uh, there is so much, (laughs) so much stress and anxiety in our world today. And God, you know the areas of our own lives where we Uh, have trouble sleeping at night that keep us up, that cause our blood to boil, that leads us into paralysis. But God, help us. Help us. Help us to know who we are and whose we are. Help us maybe most of all to know that we are not alone that the God of this universe has come down 
through his son Jesus, given his very life on the cross and risen again so that we could be connected to you. So Lord, I pray for all of us here that as we follow you, Jesus, you would help us to be leaders who stay calm. In your name we pray.